Disciples of Jesus are going to be opposed in this world. That's not a working hypothesis. That's a fact. It's a fact because the evil one has power in this world. Limited power, but power nonetheless. And his, his purpose, his design, is destruction. To destroy everything that God has made and loves. God's creation. God's people. His purpose is to confuse us about who God is. To skew our understandings and our views about God. And to lead us to ultimately eternal destruction. And we live in a world of people who do not realize that it is the evil one that is at work. But out of that comes opposition to Christ and his followers. Jesus says to his disciples in this passage we read this morning, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. You shouldn't be surprised by that. That is just the way it is when you're a follower of Jesus. The question is not, is there going to be, are there going to be problems in the world for God's people? Is there opposition to God in this world? The question is, what is God's presence in the midst of that opposition? What does God's presence look like in the midst of that opposition to become uh, become a, a presence and a witness for the truth and the reality about who God is? It intrigues me that God has answered that question from the very beginning of Scripture. You go back to the book of Genesis. In chapter 12 of the passage we read earlier, God calls out Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I, I, I've put my hand on you and I've called you out of your people and all the places that are comfortable and I'm going to bless you and bring you into this land. But the reason I'm going to bless you is so that you will be a blessing. Paul picks up that idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says that, that you have been, that, that we are called, that our task is to be ambassadors for Christ. And to follow him and, and, to, and to speak for him. And Jesus has that, says that same thing in John 17. Where he says, I'm praying not only for these disciples who are right here in front of me, but for all who will believe because of their message. And then in John 15 that we just read, Jesus says to his disciples, you are going to testify me. God's presence and his witness in the world is his people, the church. And that may feel a little bit intimidating at times. It may feel a little bit uh, difficult at times. It may be overwhelming at times, but that's, that's what God has said. When I was thinking about that, it reminded me of the story that's been told for I don't know how many decades, but a long time, apocryphal, obviously, of Jesus when he ascends into heaven and he meets an angel and the angel says, okay, all that's been taken care of. You've died for the sins of the world. Now, who's going to carry out that message? 
to the rest of the world. And Jesus says, my disciples. The angel says, really? Yeah. He said, well, what if, what if they don't want to do it? What if, they, what if they back out? What if they walk away from it? What's plan B? And Jesus says, I don't have a plan B. My disciples. Now, there is reality in that story, but it's not the whole picture. Because Jesus not only says, you are to be my witnesses, you're going to testify about me. He also says in John 15, 26, the Holy Spirit is going to testify about me. And we, have, we realize that there is, there is this tension between it's, it's all about the church and it's about the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John 12 that the only people who can come are the ones who I draw to me. And the people who, when I'm lifted up, are going to draw people to myself. And who is it that draws people to him? It's the Holy Spirit. Now, I suspect most people have a difficult time understanding the Holy Spirit. You know, we have a pretty good idea of God the Father. And, and we have an even better conceptualization of God the Son. But God the Spirit feels like an anomaly to us. It's hard to wrap our minds around the Spirit. And, and the church has wrestled with this through the ages. And so it's typically, typically the response has been, we just sort of ignore the Holy Spirit. We talk about God the Father and we talk about God the Son. The Holy Spirit confuses us, so we'll just sort of put the Holy Spirit over there. And we don't say much about it. But Jesus does. The Scripture does. The Holy Spirit is at work in creation, Genesis tells us. The Holy Spirit is at work all throughout the Old Testament. And now, Jesus, in, in these last words before he goes to the cross, in John 14, 15, and 16, he talks a lot about the Holy Spirit. And Paul will talk even more about the Holy Spirit as well. And Jesus, in fact, says in chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit is so vital that it's one of the reasons Jesus is ascending to heaven. Because the Holy Spirit can't come if I don't go. You see, Jesus can, be, can only be in one place at one time. The Holy Spirit can be in all places at all times. It's, it's easy, easier, to, to see Jesus coming... And to build up the walls and to prepare to reject him. But the Holy Spirit has a way of working surreptitiously in our lives when we don't even realize it. The Holy Spirit can work around those walls. I remember hearing uh, Dennis Kinlaw talk about being on a plane to uh, San Antonio one day and he was sitting there and, you know, gentleman in the seat next to him, and they were reading, both of them. And he asked the gentleman what he was reading, and they talked about that. And so the gentleman looked at him, and he said, that look, he thought, that looks like a religious book. And Dr. Kinlaw said, yeah, it is. He said, are you a Christian? And Dr. Kinlaw said, yes, I am. Are you a Christian? He said, no, no. He said, I'm an atheist. At least I, I think I am. And, uh, and Dr. Kinlaw said, well, that's interesting. Tell me about that. And he began to unravel the story of things that have been happening in his life. He suffered from, from vicious, untreatable migraines for years. 
And he had done everything possible to try to be free from them, and nothing worked. And one day he said, you know what? I'm going to pray. And he prayed for God to take away his migraines. And they went away. And he said, my first thought was, wow, what good luck. And then I realized, no, wait, that's cheapening what I think just happened there. So I prayed again. And I said, God, I don't know if you're real. And I don't know if you care. And I don't know if you can hear me. And I don't know if you're the one that did this. But if you are, I just want you to know that I'm grateful. And he said, and when I prayed that prayer, then I began to start thinking about things that I had considered serendipities, coincidences in my life. And, and my mind began to reel about what if maybe they weren't coincidences in my life. Maybe there's something else going on. And he turned to Dr. Kendall and he said, do you think our conversation today is an accident? And Dr. Kendall laughed and said, no, he said, I wasn't even supposed to be on this plane. And the man laughed and said, you know what? I wasn't supposed to be on this plane either. And right then, just at that moment, they felt the jerk of the wheels of the plane hitting the landing strip of the airport. And Dr. Kinlaw said, I prayed, Lord, really? You're going to land a plane right now? We couldn't have had some clouds so we'd circle for a while? Something? I'm just about ready to help him understand what he's been experiencing, to tell him about you in the middle of all these things. Really? He said, it was almost as if I heard an audible voice of the Holy Spirit saying to me, Now, Dennis, I appreciate what you've done here, but I think I've been doing a pretty good job with him up to this point. (laughs) And I think I can handle it from here. Holy Spirit works in ways that are hard to block. Leslie Newbegin said that, you know, the first Christian sermon wasn't because the disciples said, ooh, we ought to get out there and do a mission. It was because the Holy Spirit came. And they said, we better help people understand this. It was a response to the work of the Spirit. And God's plan, God's design is that both the Spirit and the church come together to be His witness and His presence. And we understand that on one level, that the that, that that's the right thing to do, but on another level, it's hard for us because the Holy Spirit is always perfect in His witness. The Holy Spirit is always doing the right thing at the right time. And let's be honest, we aren't. And we mess things up. And, it, and, and we lose confidence. You know, maybe it's because of the... I told you a story last week about the police officer pulling over the woman and the highway and the traffic. And maybe it's because of that that I had this traffic thing in my head. But I, I saw a video recently about traffic. And um, so I want to show it to you this morning. Uh, it's a simple solution to traffic. And um, it's a little bit long. It's about four and a half minutes. And there is a spot in it where it feels like it's the end. It's not quite. So I'll let you see it. Stuck at an intersection, you always watch unfold the fundamental problem of traffic. On green, the first car accelerates, and then the next, and then the next, and then the next, and then you, only to catch 
the red. Had the cars accelerated simultaneously, you would have made it through. Coordination, <coughs> not cars, is the problem. Because we are monkey drivers with slow reaction times and short attention spans. Even if we tried, getting everyone to press the pedal on 3, 2, 1, now would be challenging. This discoordination limits how many cars can get through an intersection, and when one backs up to the next, that's when city-sized gridlock cascades happen, taking forever to clear. In general, more intersections equals more discoordination, which equals more traffic. This is the motive behind big highways. No intersections. Splits and merges, yes. Intersections, no. No stopping, no coordination problems, no traffic. Well, that's the theory anyway. Intersections outside of a highway will back <coughs> up onto it, again, because human reaction times limit how many cars can escape the off-ramp when the light changes. But even without intersections, there would still be traffic on the highway. Traffic can just appear. Take a one-lane highway with happy cars flowing until a chicken crosses the road. The driver who sees it brakes a little, the driver behind him doesn't notice immediately and brakes a little harder than necessary, the driver behind him does the same until someone comes to a complete stop. And oh look, cars approaching at highway speeds must now stop as well. Though the chicken is long gone, it left a phantom intersection on the highway. This is what's happened when you're stuck in traffic for hours thinking there must be a deadly pile up ahead, and then suddenly the traffic's over with no wreckage in sight. To your relief, if you're a good person and mild annoyance if you aren't, you just pass through a phantom intersection, the cause of which is long gone. And this phantom intersection moves. It's really a traffic snake slithering down the road, eating oncoming cars at one end and pooping them out the other. On a ring road, a single car slowing down will start an aerobarus of traffic that will last forever, even though there's no problem with the road. If the drivers could coordinate to accelerate and separate simultaneously, easy driving would return. But they can't, so traffic eternal. On highways, traffic snakes grow if cars are eated faster than excreted, and they shrink if excreted faster than eated, dying when the last car accelerates away before the next car must stop. Now, in multi-lane highways, there needs be no chicken to start gridlock. A driver crossing lanes quickly with cars too close behind is enough to birth a traffic snake that lives for hours and leagues. It's this quick crossing that causes drivers behind to overbrake and begin a chain reaction. But we can make traffic snakes less likely by changing the way we drive. Your goal as a driver is to stay the same distance from the car ahead as from the car behind at all times. Tailgating is trouble, not just because it makes accidents more likely, but because you as the tailgater can start a traffic snake if the driver ahead brakes. Always in the middle. This gives you the most time to prevent overbraking, but also gives the driver behind you the most time as well. And when stuck in traffic, this rule would get all cars to pull apart the snake faster. That's the simple solution to traffic, getting humans to change their behavior, perhaps by sharing this video to show how and why traffic happens, why tailgaters are trouble, and how we can work together to make the roads better for all. The end. Except, yeah, wishing upon a star that people are better than they are is a terrible solution every time. Instead, what works is a structurally systematized solution, which is exactly what self-driving cars are. Self-driving cars can just be programmed to stay in the middle and accelerate simultaneously. They'll just do it. The more self-driving cars at an intersection, the more efficient the intersection gets. A solid lane of self-driving cars vastly increases throughput. Hmm, actually, if you ban humans from the road, which we should totally do anyway, you can get 
get rid of the intersection entirely. After all, a traffic light is just a tool for drivers on one road to communicate with drivers on another, poorly and coarsely. Red equals don't go now, we are coming through the intersection. Green equals good to go. But self-driving cars can talk to each other at the speed of light. With that kind of coordination, no traffic light necessary. Just as with a highway, the best intersection is no intersection. Humans will never drive this precisely. At the intersection, the fundamental problem with traffic that you watch unfold, as with everything, is people. So the real simple solution to traffic is no more monkeys driving. The fundamental problem is people, and if you can eliminate people from driving, the roads would be perfect. And there's something in the back of our minds that says if we could eliminate the human part of witness, it would be perfect. That's not God's plan. God is willing to risk our failings and our missteps because he wants us to be a part of it and enjoy the privilege of being a part of it. Jesus could have said to his disciples, okay, guys, the Holy Spirit's coming. You guys just sit over there, yeah, farther back, no, back further, further, and the Holy Spirit's just going to take care of everything because I know you guys, the minute you get into this, it's going to be a mess. You're going to start fighting with each other. You're going to be divisive. You're going to say the wrong things at the wrong time. It's going to be a problem. Let's just let the Holy Spirit do it, and then everybody gets the perfect witness. But he doesn't. I think Jesus is saying to them, the Holy Spirit's going to go before you and prepare the way. And the Holy Spirit's going to go after you, correcting the many things that you did wrong. But the one thing you can do, the Holy Spirit can't do, is to be my eyes, my ears, my mouth, my body. The visible presence of God. And if it's just the church without the Spirit, we're in trouble. But God's plan is at the same time not the Spirit without the church. You know, when you talk about weaving and looms, I mean, everybody, when they, you do something like that, you want to make it perfect. But quite frankly, it's pretty hard for human beings to do things perfectly. Generally, there is some little thing that's not quite right. If you've been to the prayer room, you know we've got a loom down there. And we're encouraging people to run a strand or two through that loom, and we hope to have that finished by the time the prayer vigil's done. And if you look at that, I mean, it's not perfect. It's all kinds of colors, all kinds of fabric, all kinds of, even some of the weaving isn't done exactly right. And I was in there this week, and part of me said, I want to fix that. And then I realized, no, I can't. I shouldn't. Because this represents all the creative differences that we are, and all the different ways that we bring our witness into the world. And God wants that. Because you see, the opposite of a perfect tapestry is not an imperfect tapestry. The opposite of a perfect tapestry is an empty loom. God's not looking for perfection. He's looking for willingness, for involvement. That's what he's calling us to. And why would God do that? Why would God risk so much by letting us be a part of this process 
when he knows that we don't have near the ability to be perfect in the witness that the Spirit does. It's because he loves us. He wants partnership with us. And he wants, to be a part, wants us to be a part of the joy of helping people discover him like we have. And the joy of, of knowing God transforming power in their lives and to be able to realize God used us. We were a part of that. It's an amazing thing. And the skin law says, don't disparage the effectiveness of any human ministry that originates with the Spirit. Because it's an incredible thing to be a human. An especially marvelous thing to be a human in the hands of God. As partners with the Holy Spirit. To bear witness to the reality and the truth of who God is, even in a world that opposes Him. For you, lie. Embrace this amazing privilege. Father, thank you for the privilege you've given us. So work in us that we are willing you to use us however you desire. Thank you for the privilege of partnership. With the grace of Christ, we ask this. Pray this.